0: Welcome to the Discomfort by Design podcast, where we
1: showcase people who chase discomfort, live life on the fringe, and pursue high adventure. We bring you the stories that inspire you to go find out. Now here's your host, Taylor Quick. back to another episode of the Discomfort by Design podcast. Today I'm joined with my buddy Jonathan West. What's up my man?
0: Hey how's it going? How's it going? Glad to be here. <laughs> man it's it is going great. Um, just winding
1: down our school year you know we're getting uh first part of December and uh, that's gonna that's gonna bring us to a a part of the year where everything kind of winds down, but also kicks up because we've got you know assessments and exams and all that stuff, and your kids go freaking crazy at this time of year because mm-hmm. they're restless because they're like, "Oh my gosh, it's almost Christmas!" And it's like, "Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. you know. So <laughs> it's um, it's good, man, but it, it's also kind of kind of stressful. It, it's it's fun though; it's a lot of fun. How are things going yeah. in your world
0: now? Remind me, so you you you're a you're a football coach.
1: Yes. So I'm, I'm on a football staff. I I, I coach on Friday nights. I coach linebackers here at union high school, but my primary focus Mm -hmm. uh, is the strength and conditioning program. So that's, that's why they hired me was to Mm -hmm. run the weight room, run strength and conditioning. That's, that's my primary job, but to function within that job, I had to be also on the football staff. So I do, I do coach a position as well.
0: Wow. Okay. What a, what a rewarding, Position to be in to get, be able to pour into young men's lives. I mean that's and at a – I I mean your your podcast is called discomfort by design. Like what a great time to learn discomfort, right? Is is when you're young and you don't have anybody relying on you, man. That's man. Congratulations on doing that.
1: No man, it's uh, it, it's it's something that I've I've always kind of been drawn to. Um, when I was playing football in high school, you know, we our, our our strength and conditioning was was a, a an assistant football coach who was a he was a marine before he became a teacher and so like i mean he went, ran the weight room like like what he got at Paris Island um wow. and so you know i didn't really have any strength and conditioning coach when i got you know when i was in high school and i went to junior college and our our strength conditioning coach was our defensive coordinator who played for the Ravens you know like i mean oh he played pro ball so he must know a little something So, I mean, it was just basic whiteboard workouts. And then when I left Heinz Community College, I got to Ole Miss, I got thrown into a real actual strength conditioning program. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is awesome. I want to do this. And so I changed my major, flipped everything around, and dove off into that world, man, and um, took a little detour. Uh, I was just a regular – teacher and a coach for a few years while my wife was finishing up school and I I know we kind of talked about this before we started recording um saying she's my sugar mama my wife is a pharmacist and she's she's the director of pharmacy for a hospital here in Mississippi um and so you know I jokingly say she's my sugar mama now because you know even though I I I work a full-time job and and make a decent living she outclasses me quite a bit um (laughs) but while she was in school (laughs) She was working while she was in school, but she was you know barely able to work part time because pharmacy school is pretty demanding mm-hmm. but I was coaching and teaching at the time, so I was the sugar daddy there for a couple of years, and then gladly gladly gave her that mantle <laughs> when when she graduated um I had a chance to to go be a grad assistant at the college level and get my master's degree and learn how to be a real strength conditioning coach. I had a great mentor who uh, took me under his wing and, and showed me the ropes and how to do it. And so, from from that point forward, even when I got back to the high school level, it was all about it was all about strength and conditioning, right? Like that was my main focus. So finally, able to do what I what I really wanted to do, and, and doing it with a population that desperately, desperately needs it, because most mm-hmm. high schools, man, it's just football coaches who mean well, but they have no
0: flipping clue what they are doing. Mm hmm. so no flipping clue what they're doing as far as strength and conditioning. Absolutely. I mean, okay. they
1: they do what they what they know, and there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to just you know people to hear this and think I'm disparaging football coaches. I'm not. Sure. Because at the end of the day, that's generally who runs the weight room, right? Is the football coaches, and most football coaches went to college to be a coach, so they majored in mm-hmm. whatever you know, whatever subject they wanted to teach, whether it be history or PE, math, science, whatever, they do not have the educational background that Mm -hmm. strength coaches who who specifically strength conditioning coaches have. They don't take biomechanics. They don't take advanced exercise physiology assessment prescription. They don't take, you know, multiple years of human anatomy with labs and all that stuff. They don't go through certification processes where, I mean, the, the certification that I hold is the SCCC, which is the strength conditioning coach certified through the collegiate strength conditioning coach association. It's kind of considered the gold standard in the world is a 640 hour internship that you have to wow. sit before you can even take the test to get certified. So you got to sit that internship. You got to take a, a written exam that you have to pass. And then you have to go to the annual conference and take a, in-person practical exam where you stand in front of a table with four master strength coaches sitting there. They'll tell you to teach and demonstrate a few exercises, a few different exercises. They'll critique you. They'll ask you questions on like, all right, so if you've got an athlete who has this injury, how are you going to get them to do that exercise, all that stuff? And then you have another table you go to where you've devised a program, you've written a, a you know a program and they it, break it down and tear it apart and ask you every single question they can ask you about it. And you have to answer those questions. And if you don't pass all three of those steps, you're not getting certified. So like, if you hold that cert, man, you you've been through the ringer and you uh, you've earned it.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, man. That's so, all right. So th- how long did it take you to complete that process?
1: So I, I, I did the 640 hours in my first year as a grad assistant passed mm-hmm. the written exam the first time I took it. And on the practical portion, I, I passed the um, the program design portion where they, you know, critique your program, made, made a great score on that. And then on the demonstration mm-hmm. portion, I didn't pass the first year. I have no mm-hmm. idea why. No idea. Mm-hmm. Did the exact. And this is this is kind of my only hang up with this with this certification is there's some subjectiveness to it because I did the exact Mm -hmm. same thing the next year word for word verbatim, because it's what our, our mentor taught us. You know, he's, he's, he's a master strength coach himself. He, he does, he administers the test. And so like he taught us exactly what to do. And I did the exact same thing the next year. And when I got my score back, I got a perfect score. So I I have no idea why I didn't Mm -hmm. pass it the first year, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. And and so generally it only takes one year um, start to finish. Cause you get to do the the internship during, you know, your grad assistant hours. Um, it can take up to two, sometimes three, you get three years to, uh, to take it without starting over. You, if you pass one thing, you got you know, you pass the written exam, you can take the, the practical the next year or vice versa without starting over in a three-year window.
0: Wow, so discomfort by design, <laughs> literally. <that laughs> yeah, totally man. So let me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, no, for sure. Jeez. And and the crazy thing was, man, that first year I started as a grad assistant in June first of two thousand sixteen. My first son was born August the third, um, and so I was, you know, learning all this new stuff back in school for a master's degree. Newborn. Leaving at four thirty in the morning, getting home at seven thirty, eight o'clock at night. God buddy, that God. was a that was a rough that was a rough year.
0: How many years was that? You did that? Oh, one year. Okay. I
1: did that for two one years. Year. So I did that I did that God from June you, of twenty sixteen until May of twenty eighteen. And then June of twenty eighteen, I started at a six A high school here in Mississippi as their strength conditioning coach and have followed the sugar mama around for her job since.
0: I love that you call her the Sugar Mama. I, I, I'm gonna have to meet the Sugar Mama. <laughs> Dude, she's we awesome. Can have, we can we can we can be, we can we can be bougie and have steak and and wine or something. Y'all like live that. close to Nashville, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're uh, we're about 40 minutes south of the city. Okay, so mm-hmm.
1: Casey and I went to Nashville back in May. Um, just kind of right. took a trip. She and I together. We we, we stayed in Murfreesboro, actually. And, um, had a little weekend, man, and we didn't do anything really Nashville ish. We, um, Mm -hmm. man, we went out from Murfreesboro and went on a hike, found found this really awesome waterfall and stuff just cause she loves being outdoors and doing stuff like that. And I do too. But we, uh, that night though, we went and ate at a place called urban grub. You ever eaten at urban grub?
0: Oh yeah, man, dude. <laughs> yes.
1: Oh man, I was like, I don't, I don't belong in here. <laughs> I started looking at the menu, and I was like, no. this is, this they they did not have me in mind when they made this place because that is not the you know the no, normal type it's, of restaurant. It's, I not, it's not your,
0: it's not a barbecue meat and potatoes kind of spot at Urban Grub. This is high dollar, pinky out rice charcuterie boards. You know yes. carafts to pour your water. Yeah, it's. Yeah, and it's funny because there's a lot of places in Nashville that are like that, um, and I think it's because we've got a massive influx of Californians that have moved here, uh, and so with that came a kind of cultural fusion, I would say, between uh, what I call California, um, you know, culture and then Southern culture. It's it, but it used to be, I mean, Nashville, like I grew up here. We're born and raised. We're natives and um used to be Nashville was you know your hot chicken or your barbecue spot. Uh it was rarely the spot that you came to to like have a bachelorette party or where executives from, you know, Fortune 500 companies would come and have their conferences. But now it's kind of become this um metropolis in a way. It's it's uh it's it's crazy the pivot. Uh how it happened. It's been it's been progressing that way for about i say probably the past like five to 10 years, uh, but growing up, it was not that way. The coolest thing we had was what we call the Batman building, which is the old bell South, which is now AT&T building. That was like our claim to fame. The Batman uh, building. Now <laughs> yeah. That's what we called it. Cause it's got two little, two little horns up there. Yep. Um So yeah, Um it's just, it's crazy the change, man. And, and I think a lot of places after COVID, uh, in the South in particular have changed because there's been so such an influx of people to the South after everything that went down in 2020. So. Yeah, man, for sure. I, it was it was weird because, you know, I had been
1: to Nashville. I guess the first time I really went and spent any time in Nashville was probably, oh, 2004, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we're thinking, you know, 16 years ago, 17, mm-hmm. 18 years ago now. And then, you know, been back a couple of times since then, but never really in my adult life had I really gone to Nashville and like just hung out. Um, I went a couple of years ago for a work conference, but we didn't really get out into Nashville, we stayed right over there by where all the honky tonks and stuff are. And so, I mean, like we saw that mm-hmm. side of Nashville, but that's what you think, you know, that's what that's what you think of when you think of Nashville is all those little honky tonks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but when we came this time. We had a we had a concert we went to while we were there Um There's a, a, a band that my wife absolutely loves. I got her the tickets for Christmas nice. last year. Good work. And anyway, um, we, we went to that that restaurant. I was like, Oh my word! This is a this is awesome. I'm really about mm-hmm. to enjoy myself. And B, I don't know if I'll ever eat anywhere like this ever again. <laughs> but dude, we got the charcuterie them. board appetizer. We got. um She got some really good steak. I got a man. I had a thirty-day aged fillet with bone marrow butter. I was like, dude, I'm, I'm sucking the freaking fat out of life right now. This is awesome. Yeah,
0: man. Hey, listen. Sometimes you got to get that marrow in, brother. And I understand. I mean, if you go to a spot where they have marrow, that's when you know that you're in. You're you're not at your. You're not at your Shoney's or your Denny's. You're at a different spot if they got bone marrow butter. We're not you know, at the Western Sizzling no more, boys. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. You're not at the Sizzler. You're not at uh, uh what's another one? Old Charlie's we ain't my, Applebee's you, you ain't at Applebee's, my brother. You're something different now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it was neat, man. I loved it. So if, if we uh to to bring it back full circle, next time we come to Nashville, man, I'll have to hit you up and see if we can we can link up for a night and maybe go to Urban Grub and and eat some some high
0: dollar food. Hey, I'm okay with it. I'm o and, and my wife will be okay with it cuz she <laughs> loves high dollar food. Well, so, will our, I. Her, our our spot here is this place called the Optimist. And it's not there's nothing Nashville really about it. It's a seafood spot, but they've got the best oysters um that I have ever had in the south. I've uh, never had well, let me tell me say that back. Drago's in New Orleans has really great oysters, right? Um Places in Florida have really good oysters. You eat them? Are you eat them raw, I, or are you eat them char grilled? Well, I, however I can get them, it's honest to God truth. But I love uh, I love char grilled um, oysters, and um, and I like them raw if they're good. These are the best ones I've had. In t- Tennessee does isn't known for oysters. Well,
1: it's you know, because they have no beaches.
0: <laughs> that's exactly right. So they <laughs> ship they ship all of their oysters from these uh, from Maine and everywhere else. And um, somehow or another, their supply chain just does it right. It doesn't have that fishy taste. You know, it just tastes like – it tastes fresh. I don't know how they do it. I really Dude,
1: I, I, I love, 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 love char-grilled oysters. And so the first part of Thanksgiving break last week, me, my father-in-law, his father-in-law, and my oldest son, Trip, we went on a, uh, a little fishing fishing trip down in um, Venice, Louisiana. So mm-hmm. if, if you've never been to Venice – you go to new Orleans and then you go south. Okay. So there's a highway out of new Orleans called highway 23. Yes, sir. Is the only thing out and you go until you hit water. Okay. Um, and like Venice, yeah, right. literally like if you pull it up on, like if you're on Instagram or, or anything and you, you go to tag the location, the location mm-hmm. literally says end of the world. It's like, it's nothing down there. Like the blast thing in there is a little marina down there and a bunch of houseboats and then the salt marsh and then the big gulf. Right. Wow. So one of the nights we were down there, um, my wife's grandfather who was with us wanted to go kind of back up towards New Orleans a little bit because we had passed some orange groves and he wanted to go get some fresh oranges and satsumas and stuff like that to take back home. Mm -hmm. And we were coming back. The day before Thanksgiving, so he was trying to do it before then because he's you know he's worried some of them fruit stands might be closed and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when we went back up there on Tuesday night, it was like, well, let's find somewhere to eat while we're up here. So we're in Port Sulphur, um, which is mm-hmm. about halfway between Venice and New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And so we're in Port Sulphur, and we found this little restaurant, and we pulled in, and as we pull in, comes right behind us a truck that had a big thing in the back and they start offloading oysters mm. that had been caught hours before that. Like that those were the that was the catch from the day. Um, the day. Wow. wow. Dude, I was like, oh man, I'm finna <laughs> and we went in there and, and her granddaddy ordered he, he likes his raw. He ordered a dozen raw and I ordered a dozen char grilled oysters and dude they were absolutely phenomenal. Fire.
0: Okay. Well sound like I'm gonna head down to Venice then. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's what that sounds like.
0: <laughs> it
1: was it was it was nuts, man. It was just this little out of the way hole in the wall looking place on the side of the highway in Port Sulphur, where there's there's nothing, um, and that is phenomenal food. Absolutely fantastic food.
0: Um, I think um, the interesting thing about eating like that, because there's a reason that this stuff is expensive. There's a reason that steak is expensive. There's a reason that grilled oysters are expensive and that's because the stuff is actually very nutritious for you. Um, that, now, in addition to that, it also takes a lot to be able to harvest some of those things. But I was thinking about it the other day. I was like, man, like how much of a healthier diet would someone have if they lived on like the coastland of, of the U S you know what I'm saying? Like you just, you're surrounded by sun, you're in the sun all the time. You You get, you know, to, "Quote unquote exfoliate when you're on the beach, right? When you're walking through sand, uh, you're eating the food that's like fresh caught. It's all fresh. You can grow everything any time of the year. Like I just think about the diets of of people that live in these coastlands. I'm like, man, like what a great life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> and I mean, if you
1: can and if you can find a a place on the coast where you can also have some type of red meat involved in your diet, mm-hmm. oh man." So like oh, yeah. that that's kind of that was kind of the downside now down, being down there in Port Sulfur and Venice and all that is like the only thing you have out there to, that you can go get that's you know native to the area and wild other than fish is like squirrel and rabbit. And don't get me wrong, I love them both. There's nothing in this world that's better sometimes than than fried squirrel and a hot biscuit. I love it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but I like deer yeah. and I like turkey. Mhm. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And I love I love beef. Yeah. So, you know, being able to do both would be really neat. Somewhere, you know, maybe like the East Coast, kind of the parts of maybe like South Carolina and Georgia to be Carolina, be Georgia. really good places to be.
0: I imagine probably some parts of Florida as well. You can still catch uh you can still go whitetail um up up toward the northern northern coast. Of Florida, I think you can still get whitetail out there.
1: Yeah, and then they've got the Osceola turkey down there that's pretty pretty plentiful.
0: Um, oh, yeah. I, see, I've not had good wild turkey. So oh, I need oh, to oh, – when you get – you invited me uh, maybe a year ago down for turkey, and I've, I still want to do it just to do it, but, like, I just – I've never had good wild turkey. Well, it's, it's always been just kind of – it's all bit. in it's
1: all in how you do it, man. And the, the way that we do it down here is pretty simple. Um, you kill a bird in the morning, and mm-hmm. you're gonna basically you're eating turkey nuggets for for lunch or supper. So what what you're gonna do with it is just obviously you fry it just like chicken, just make nuggets mm-hmm. and fry it out of the breast. But mo- what most people do, and this this is what kills me, is so many mm-hmm. people just cut the breast off the bird and throw the rest of it away. It's crazy. It is. It's nuts um it's wasteful, 100 it, mm-hmm. and so i cut the thighs off i cut the legs off there's nothing on the wings there's no point in even fooling with the wings because they're mm-hmm. unless unless you're wanting to get them to like boil down and then bake the bones to make a broth. broth like if you're wanting to do yeah. that then sure but if you're not intent on making a broth and the other thing is is there's not enough on them you're gonna have to have like six or eight turkeys to make the wings mm-hmm. do a broth but what yeah. i do and, and I use, I use legs and thighs for this is I make like a pulled I think, think like a consistency of like pulled pork,
0: hmm.
1: um, with out of Turkey legs and thighs. And I usually make it and use it for, uh, gumbo. So when I make gumbo, yeah. I use Turkey, wild Turkey in my gumbo instead of chicken. Um, oh, wow. and so, man, it's, it's yeah. real simple. It's good. Dude, you, you put them <laughs> in a crock pot with a little bit of that liquid in the good. bottom. I usually use apple juice, just a little bit of apple juice in the bottom season them how you want to put them in a crock pot overnight. And dude, I'll send you a video. I did. I just, I just literally made them like three days ago. Um, but you know, like people get turkey legs and they've got those like hard tendons in them. And it's so hard to eat. They're even worse in a wild Turkey than they are in a domesticated bird that was raised for food. But dude, you can, you can pick that leg up and and just kind of shake it a little bit, and it'll fall straight off. It's, it's the easiest thing. They're easy to get out, and then you just shred the meat up, and you've got really good shredded wild game meat that's ridiculously easy to do and can be used in, you know, whatever you want to use it in um, that most people just throw by the wayside and throw in a
0: ditch. Yeah. Man. Man. That's crazy. I can't imagine wasting, uh, the, the animal that that's uh, kind of gets me about a lot of, a lot of folks. Cause even sometimes when I go out to restaurants, people throwing away whole plates of food, I'm like, guys, <laughs> they just picked around and then they throw it away. I'm like, this is me. crazy. I'm a, uh, I have become, since I started getting into hunting, I've become a big nose to tail advocate. Um, I'm kind of scared on dealing with some parts. Like I'm scared of dealing with eyes of animals and things like that. But terms of like the, like, uh, so for example, I just had my first experience with liver, deer liver, uh, really enjoyed it. I really thought it was good. Um, and this year will be my first year doing uh, like boiling down bones for broth. Cause I've never done that before either with deer. Anyway, I've done it with chicken uh, and I've never done it with beef. But after taking Coach Ross, some of you guys that listen to this probably know who he is. I'm sure you do. I know you do, Taylor. But, yes, uh, he, Ross, he, Hillier. He, yeah. Yeah, Ross Hillier. Yeah, Ross said, Yeah, Coach Ross. Man, the Nomad. He he put me on um, going to a lot of these butchers and just asking for bones, mm-hmm. um, grass fed ones, and then just going and boiling it down, and you got a supply of like healthy, nutritious collagen, uh, which is good for a myriad of different things. I won't go into all that, but um, but yeah, so I, I just got into that recently and I'm like, man, why don't they teach you this stuff in school? You know? Well, most people don't teach it cause they don't know it.
1: Like you'd have to have somebody that knows that. And, and that's a, that's a lost, um, man, that's a lost skill. And, mm-hmm. and something that I'm looking heavily into right now, and I was talking to a friend of mine about it the other day is I'm looking heavily into, um, processing my own deer meat from now on out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause normally I get it, I process the deer. I get, I take it to a processor to get it made into sausage or get it made into whatever I'm going to have it made into. But why am I doing that? Why am I outsourcing that? It, mm-hmm. it, it takes mm-hmm. it, it. Yes. It takes a little time, mm-hmm. but God forbid we, we put down the TV and put down the phone and, and, and do something with our hands and take some time and yeah. put some effort into something, you know, and, and yeah, it's going to take a little time and it's going to take some trial and error and it's going to take a take some learning to figure out recipes and, mm-hmm. and you know, consistencies and making sure I've got the right this and that. And, and it's, yeah, I may, I may take a little while to get it worked out. But I mean, once I do, I'm no longer paying 150 to $200 every time I kill a deer to have someone else do it. I pay it once to Good buy one. the equipment and then, then I'm putting that money back into something else
0: in your pocket. Well, uh, putting it back in your pocket for your family. And I think one of the big things too, that you were, that you were kind of touching on man is getting in touch with what you put in your mouth on a very, in a way that is participatory, right? Like you're involved in the process. Cause one of the things like, uh, we got a processor out here um, and you, he, they, there's some stuff that they just won't give back to you unless you like specifically ask. And my preference would be, okay, why well, put that girl down or that guy down? I'd like to have all of it back if you don't mind, but they, they'll throw some they'll throw the innards away. They'll throw bones away. That's all valuable stuff. That's all nutritionally valuable stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I'm paying 150 bucks to get back, you know, maybe <clears throat> 50% of the animal overall. Like if you're factoring in bones and innards and stuff like that, so yeah, I I'm with you. I, I, we so I don't know I don't know if you can even have this on your podcast. I'm not gonna tell you this story. I'll tell you the story offline. But long story short, I, I mean, we mistake. can have anything we want on this podcast. I'm I know the boss. Okay, okay. Here it is. So <laughs> Jonathan, for his first hunt, uh, put down a put down a girl, and brought her across state lines. Yeah,
1: and that that's that's a no no. You killed that deer in Mississippi, didn't you?
0: Yes, and I had no idea. I had That's no clue a no-no. <laughs> that, that was a thing. And I brought the girl across state lines, and ended up taking it to the process. Like, hey, I got a deer. I was like, so excited. I got my first deer, and dude was like, "Yeah, no, you can't. No, I'm, I'm not even going to tell anybody that you were here. You need to go." So I left, <laughs> and me and my buddy in here in Tennessee. He lives. Uh, he lives about 45 minutes. He's in the sticks. Good friend of mine. Uh, he and I, we processed that deer ourselves. Cut her up, got her, got her uh, quartered out, like cut the, cut the backstrap into pieces and all that. And um, and yeah, that's how we had to do it. But yeah, so I, I learned how to process with my buddy. Uh, and that's, but it's, but again, the so that's a funny story and it's an illegal story. But the 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 moral to it, all of it, is like that was an experience that me and my buddy will never forget. We sat down and we cut the legs. We were able to get the back strap diced up in appropriate spots. We watched the YouTube video on how to do it. I mean, that was was all we had. Um, Since then, I've got a book. Actually, Steve Ranilla's got a book um, called Hunting, Butchering, and Cooking Wild Game. He's got a volume one, volume two, one for big game, one for small game. And that's what I've got since then. And that's kind of been helping me out far as recipes and, and understanding what different cuts, uh, go, you know, do well with certain, certain recipes or styles of cooking. And so, um uh, but that's a, that's a, that's a fun experience to be able to do something like that out of your comfort zone, um, that puts you back in touch with what you put in your mouth. Uh, so, I mean, that's the whole reason I got into hunting anyways, probably the whole reason you got into it, right? Well,
1: I'm, I'm, uh, I was raised in it. Um, my dad uh-huh. was a first that's- generation hunter. Um, his his dad didn't really hunt. His stepdad didn't really hunt. <laughs> I'll never forget this. My my dad's stepdad is a great man. A really really good man. Uh, he was a logger, and he was a big burly man. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I can definitely I can remember vividly him telling my father where to go to kill a deer and how to do this that and the other. And my dad one day turned around and looked at me. He said, "Pop, how many times have you hunted in your life?" And he said none. He said, and somehow you know how to do it better than anybody. <laughs> and he 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 <laughs> was, him out. He did. He flipped around and called him out. And I was like, oh my lord! But he he never hunted. He was not a hunter, but he could tell you how to do it. Uh, but he was like that yeah. about anything. Um, and, and I I get that way sometimes. That's a, it's a bad trait, but I I picked it up from him. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad was kind of a first generation hunter, and I, I hunted with him you know, as a kid, I, I can, I think my earliest memory hunting with him, I was probably four, four or five years old. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was raised in it. Um, my my wife's family is the same way. Her grandfather, they came up really, really poor. Um, mm-hmm. Her grandfather and grandmother got married at 17 and 15 to get out of some bad situations. And mm-hmm. there were times where if he didn't go kill a deer or have a garden they weren't gonna eat you know if they didn't grow it or cook or kill it there there wasn't no there there was no food to be had um and so that's how my wife's mother came up and she married a man who who was a hunter um and so like it it's it's very very prevalent in my family and my kids have grown up with it um Mm. my six-year-old actually took his first deer this year um Congratulations! He, he killed a he killed a little six point buck with a crossbow. It was awesome. Um awesome. Really cool experience to get to share that with him and his uncle was there with us as well. So it was a really neat thing. Um, but so I, I kind of grew up with it. And it's always been a thing. But it I the one of the reasons why I've doubled down on making sure that that's something that is in, you know very prevalent in our family structures. One is because as, as our mutual friend, Robbie Kroger says, it's in the blood, right? It's in the blood. Hunting is as, hunting is as human as anything. It's, it's how we, mm-hmm. it's how we're still here. Um, and so being able to do that, it also, there's a huge element of discomfort with hunting because we live in climate controlled environments we we're we're not used to being cold, we're not used to being hot, we're not used to being at elevation all the time, we're not used to mm. having to sit still. Like that dude, mm. you, the discomfort of stillness is wild. Oh yeah. Like and and being being in an educational standpoint where I'm around teenagers all day long, they're yeah. they they don't oh, yeah. they they there's no, there's zero stillness. Zero. They don't know how to be bored. (laughs) They don't know how to be still. They don't know how to just be. It's massively uncomfortable for them to not be constantly entertained by something. And so I wanted my kids to, to have at least this one thing in their lives where they could, they could walk away from all of that and immerse themselves into a, intentional discomfort that yields a tangible result that's going Mm -hmm. to just going to, not only is it a tangible result, but it's something that provides, you know, nutrition. It provides all this food and, and, and these stories and, and memories. And there's, there's such a great connection to the food that you eat, to the experience that you had and it, it brings it about full circle because I think one of the biggest problems we face in society is that we're disconnected from everything. We're connected mm-hmm. to everything via the phone in our hand. And we're disconnected to anything that doesn't
0: come through that screen. Let me, Oh, let, let me say this. We're we're actually, so I disagree with you, but I think you're going to agree with me because I, I agree with you and I disagree with you. I agree with you that we're connected. We're connected to information. We're not connected yes. to people or life or nature or God or or any of this stuff um, because all of that stuff happens in the real world. It happens in, in meat spaces. And so, yeah, like we know a lot of stuff, right? We get a lot of information, but we don't really know stuff. That makes sense. Like, how many times you don't been, like, in a situation, you have a fight or an argument with somebody, that say, nah, 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 that's wrong. Like, what you're saying is wrong. And you say, well, Google it. And then you go, and you Google it, you get your little information, or whatever the case is, and then you come back. See? It says it right here on Google, right? And then it's probably not even a day or two after the fact, you don't know, forgot what you even learned. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. So you know, it's and- just... Script, scripture talks about that a little bit. It talks about being a hearer instead of a doer and walking away mm-hmm. and forgetting what you look like.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> just just man, we're inundated with information, but we have no
0: knowledge, no real knowledge, no real wisdom either correct <clears throat> at all
1: but so what man i we we've kind of ran down a big rabbit hole here. I wanna circle back on something because okay, you know yeah. there's there's people who have no idea who you are. <laughs> So man give it um let's let's hit some background on Jonathan where you know obviously you said you grew up in Nashville but tell us a little bit about you your family what you do and and all that and then we'll uh we'll jump in from there.
0: That sounds good man. Yeah, we man we we literally talked. I guess this is the first 20 minutes of the podcast and no like I'm just a guy. <laughs> it's hilarious 30, 35,
1: uh, 35 minutes by the way we're just, oh, we just man. shooting okay. the breeze and and there was 10, 10 or 12 minutes before that before we started recording <laughs> oh wow that's hilarious man
0: well um i'm jonathan west uh i'm the host of a podcast called being husband i've been doing that uh since 2018 honestly so i've been doing it a while um and yeah, I, I care about men. I care about men that are married in particular. There's there's uh, cr- uh, Christian men that that just in a lot of cases don't or didn't know what it took to really be uh, a man that leads a family. There's a lot of there's a lot of information and there's a lot of like un, frankly unbiblical information on masculinity and my aim with the podcast was simply to to try and synthesize what I learned from the Bible, by the way, because there's, there's tons of information on masculinity in the Bible, but there's, there's, there's not a lot of passages that, that get into it. So that was my main goal with the podcast is to try to have conversations around being a man around being a husband uh, and, and now being a father. Cause I'm a new father, I've got a one-year-old at the house. His name's Easton. He's funny. He's, uh, he likes to laugh, and uh, he, he's, he's a trip, man. He keeps me busy. Uh, as far as, like, work, uh, I'm a full-time landscape uh, designer, a full-time landscape worker, and our emphasis is on people that want to grow their own food, so uh, it's kind of a niche uh, market there, but we, we install, we design, and we maintain uh, gardens, backyard gardens that grow food for busy families. So we've been doing that since April, full time. It's been a side hustle of mine since 2020 when everybody thought that the apocalypse was upon us, and uh, and we went full time back in April. And so that's uh, that's me in a nutshell. It's it's a lot longer story with a lot of those things, but uh, that's that's the elevator pitch, I guess. No, I mean, and
1: when I when I first met you, um, I think I think I was introduced to you on Instagram, basically through Ross Hillier, uh, dude. I swear. Mm-hmm. It's like all all the all the connections I've used to get to, the, to get people on this podcast all come back to like five people, and and a network <laughs> of, of of people yeah. off of those five people. It's insane, um, mm-hmm. and really and truly, some of those five people could be networked off of each other. It's weird. Um, yeah. But when I first met you, you were you were not doing that. What was what job were you doing? What was your career? path before, before you started suburban farm guy.
0: I was in higher education. Yeah, so I I'd been in higher education uh at a university for I mean since the podcast like it, when when the podcast was going on, I was at uh the university I was working at at the time. And uh yeah, so about 3 to, 3 to 4 years, 3 to 5 years I was there. Uh moved up in the ranks there and <clears throat> honestly wanted to change if i'm if I'm being honest um higher education is one of those places where um there there's not a lot of room to explore uh masculinity and a lot of these concepts. You're kind of looked at as strange if you're a guy that likes to hunt or you're kind of as an anomaly in some ways or you're kind of looked at as a guy that's strange that likes to grow food even. Um, and I'm not saying that's across the board. I'm not saying that that's everybody, but the type of guy that typically succeeds in higher education, um, is generally a guy that is, uh, a, a go along to get along type of guy. He doesn't really rock the boat. He's not really, um, assertive in any sense. Um, he's a nice, he's a nicer guy, which is all well and good. Um, as far as that goes, but like, that doesn't really go well in marriage <laughs> and, um, and it doesn't go well in the marketplace either. So I was just looking to kind of get out and, uh, really kind of discover a lot of those aspects about myself that I wasn't really able to explore when I was in higher education. So that's why I jumped off the porch into the, the world of entrepreneurship and the world of landscaping <clears throat> and really just embracing, uh, the weird guy that God made me to be—the guy that likes to grow his own food. Well, and
1: so you said and your focus on is on people who are wanting to grow their own food, um, and obviously I follow you, so I've seen some of the stuff that you do. Um, so walk walk me through that process. So someone says, mm-hmm. "Hey, Jonathan, um, we're interested in growing our own food. We have no idea what we're doing. We need some help." All right. So what do you do from there? How do you how do you go about that? Because that's really person specific. And it's a very niche market. So, like, yeah. man, how, yeah. how are you navigating that?
0: It's a growing niche is what a lot of people don't understand, um, particularly in millennial populations and younger. Uh, we are the generation, I don't know if you remember this, but way back, you remember when everybody just became a woodworker? <laughs> like, all your friends just started picking up woodworking and building stuff. You remember that? Maybe back in 2015. Um People just got used to or or people became enamored with this idea of uh, craftsmanship and building things. And that's when you see this explosion of uh, Instagram accounts like the Ballerina Farm, which were they're just older millennials. Uh, They were they were Yankees. They were city people. And then they just sold everything and moved on a farm uh, in Utah. Uh, There's another example of this here in Tennessee. Bankers in New York sold everything moved to Tennessee and started a goat farm and started selling goat milk. And so there's this, there's this unique situation that millennials find themselves in because they, we've grown up in a world that's been so artificial or has been, has been led towards artificiality. We were kind of like on the cusp millennials. We were like, we knew what the real world was like, you know, you got to get your bike back inside before the streetlights come home and that kind of thing. But we, we were just introduced to technology and so we kind of long for these more simple days, more simple times, more simple ways of living life. And so that market is actually growing. And so so if a client comes to me, I already know generally speaking they're they're a millennial generally like in the upper ages, so like a millennial that's, you know, nearing their 40s or is in their mid 30s probably has like 2 to 3 kids. Um, and they care about where their food comes from. They're looking for something real. They're looking for something tangible. They want to get their hands dirty, uh, but not so dirty where they want to be full-on farmers. And that's why, so my brand is called the Suburban Farm Guy. And that's birthed because the reality is is that even though millennials are attracted to that and, 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 and want to participate in that, many of them are not going to be able to afford uh, buying a big piece of land and being able to live off of it many of them don't really want it on that level right where it's just you go off in the middle of nowhere and you you do the thing you just become a farmer you become uh what your your great great grandpa was many of them aren't looking for that because they like central heating and air they like to go to the bougie restaurants like me and you like to go to and all that so they want they want a taste of it without being um full-on farmers and so if somebody comes to me and is like, "Hey, I want to do this." I know who they are, I know what they're about. So what I typically do is we create a design that's going to fit with their existing landscape already. So we try to keep it relatively aesthetic, we try to keep it looking good. This is the honest to god truth. And um and then we get with them on well, what do you guys actually eat? Cuz it's cool to grow uh, arugula, but if nobody in the house eats arugula, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So what do you guys actually consume? What are things that you all like to um, you know, complement other dishes? Let's grow some of those things. What are spices that you guys like to use, herbs and spices that you like to use? Let's grow some of that. And so we'll create like a food journal for them. once we create a food journal. And once we've already uh, agreed on design, we then go with implementation. And so I'll source lumber, I'll, so, I'll source soil. Um, if if we're doing a landscape project, which typically we do, I'll source the gravel that's there, the landscape edging and all that. And really try to create a unique, as you said, people specific, family specific garden for that family that's unique to them uh, and I, i'm in middle tennessee so a lot of people that uh, live here are, are transplants and so they don't necessarily know how the seasons work so that's where our consultation comes into play where i actually help them uh, grow in the specific season because you can't grow everything every time of year and so i help them with that aspect as well so it's it's a full-on like it said, it's full-on landscape design and installation service with an ongoing maintenance and consultation as well
1: now I I like that because you're 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 kind of the kind of the go-between guy right like they tell you what they want you kind of bring about the vision and then basically turn it loose and it's like okay here you go we'll check in on you every once in a while but at the end of the day it's still up to them to make sure that they're you know, doing what they need to do and what they have to do to raise this garden, you're not growing it for them. You're just getting them started and checking in periodically, correct?
0: Exactly. Yeah, because the reality is, let's be honest, if you're going to, if you want me to grow it for you, you're going to have to pay a premium. I'm your personal farmer, right? So you're going to have to pay quite a lot of money to have me consistently be out there. That's a full-time job, as you, I'm sure you know. Um, so, so no, when it comes to our maintenance, um, generally it breaks down what we do. Um, a, like I'll come out there once. So some people will opt in for like a once a week visit to come out there, do pest control, fertilization, um, and, and weeding just to kind of help with odds and ends once a week. Um, and then there's some people that just do the quarterly, which is where each turn of the season I'll come out, we'll cut everything out that's not going to produce in the next, uh, period of the season. And we'll put the things in that are going to be growing for the next particular season. And so with us in Tennessee, that usually happens about three times. So you'll have your cool weather stuff, which is your lettuce and your greens. Uh, once the heat of the summer comes in, we'll take all that stuff out and we'll put in, um, Ross is gonna be up back in uh, Ross. <laughs> Taylor's gonna be back in just a second. Um his internet got a hold of him, so he's gonna hop back in here in a minute. I'm just chilling. <laughs> it's hilarious, it's still recording. Hey man, can you hear me? I, don't really have I got you now. Can you bro. hear me now?
1: Okay, awesome. Sorry about that. Every once in a while, the uh, the internet out here in Podunk, Mississippi, <laughs> just is like <laughs> and it peters out. So, uh, not shocked. We had a little bit of a severe weather evening yesterday. I think there was like a hundred different tornado. No. Yeah. I think there were a hundred different severe thunderstorm or tornado that. warnings yeah. last night over the state of Mississippi. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot oh, yeah. of fun. Um, oh, you know, and, and, and we, we don't, uh, we don't, we don't live in a, in a very structured home. <laughs> we, we're in a, a mobile home at the moment. Um, oh, wow. and so we had to go, we go stay with my wife's grandparents when, uh, when that kind of weather comes through, we've actually been there before when, when a tornado came through, uh, no 76 tornado warnings, 141 severe thunderstorm warnings. Wow. fun, fun. Yeah. We we had some of that last night too. So that's, yeah, it started for us about 5. PM and went until about 2. AM. So I was, uh, it was fun.
0: (laughs) Glad y'all look good.
1: But, Oh yeah, man, there's no worries that uh, most of it stayed either a little South or a little North of us. It kind of just a little swath through there. But anyway, um, back to what you were saying, man, uh, I want to, I want to touch on, on this because it, it really is intriguing to me because you left, you left an office job where, where you go in wearing slacks and a button down every day and you sit in the air condition and you're in, you're in higher education. And now you are working a landscape job where you know to to the untrained eye and the casual observer that would seem to be backwards I don't know almost like a like a downgrade right as opposed to because when you when you think about man landscape that's manual labor versus man I get to I work in Mm -hmm. higher education Mm -hmm. oh yeah you know what I mean yeah well so, man, what was the, what was the mindset? What was the mind frame around making that switch? Because I, the other part of that too is is there's no guarantee of a paycheck, nope. right? You know, you're you're having to go out and yep. hustle for your money and, and find clients yeah. and retain clients, and you've got customer acquisition. You've got to find suppliers. You have to to deal with the in, the inflation cost and how to how to quote things and how to you know, be competitive in the space. Cause I'm sure you're not the, the only one on the only one in the market mm-hmm. that can do this or that even does mm-hmm. do this. Um, and so, I mean, I have a little bit of an idea how that works. My, my, um, my brother runs my dad's construction company now. And I, 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 and I talk about it all the time about how in the business side of what he does. So, man, what was the mindset and the mind frame for making that change because, you went from the guaranteed paycheck with the guaranteed job and the comfort job to what you have now. How did you do that?
0: I mean, mentally, mentally, like, as I'm thinking about it, like I I knew that So the reality, um, people that do well financially generally or do the best, I should say, financially, generally uh, build businesses that's just the truth about life. Um, entrepreneurs, now, now here's the thing. It's it's a gamble, right? Because it's no guarantee. But generally, the people that do win at entrepreneurship are better than the people that, are not. they're not better morally. You understand? I'm talking about like from a financial standpoint, they tend to do better than people that stay at a job for 20 years or stay in a corporate environment for 20 years, generally speaking. Um, and that's because it's, it's the whole like risk reward principle, right? If the, the person that takes the greatest risk generally gets the better, the the greatest reward. And that's kind of where my mindset was. But I didn't realize at the time, the kind of struggle that would come from building a business from the ground up. I mean, I I, I took an investment from a friend of mine that was able to cover um, my income from my previous job for about three to four months uh, but after that, there were no more checks coming in unless I produced them or unless, you know, like, seriously, I mean, unless unless Jonathan got up in the morning and went to work and and got more clients and did did all the stuff. Unless that happened, uh, there was nothing coming in. Um, so the way that our model works, you know, praise God, <clears throat> we've got the big nugget that we get, which is the installations. And so that's the big acorn because that's the thing that is the high ticket item. Right that's the big acorn. The trouble is, is that that's not that doesn't cash flow, which I'm using business terms, but cash flow is just a consistent income, right? So your paycheck is considered cash flow. So the big ticket stuff, right. the installations, those average for us anywhere between uh 8 to 10k for installation. The cash flow from that though is from the maintenance. So the maintenance allows us to be able to consistently get revenue from a client on a subscription basis and so we'll send them a link to subscribe and we take it out uh, once a month to cover for those four visits that they get per month and so that's the that's the the uh the 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 consistent revenue stream that we've got going on and and so that's that's how we've been able to to really sustain ourselves uh, during during, during that time because there's a lot of learning that i had to do as well like there's to be an entrepreneur takes a lot more than just having good ideas. You have to be a salesman. You have to be skilled at whatever craft it is that you're doing. Um, You have to be a marketer. You have to be a friend. There's, there's, you have to be a coach. There's a lot to it. Um, And I didn't realize it was going to be as intense as it has been because it's been a ringer, man. Uh, There's been months where there hadn't been a lot coming in and I've had to figure out ways to um, keep things afloat business-wise and keep things afloat at the house. And um, God's been good during that time because there's always been a way for me to make ends meet. But it's been a grind. Year one's a grind. I think year two is going to be a lot better for us because I recognize the the cycle of of everything, and I didn't have that going into it just because I'd never done it full-time before. But now that I understand how, the client purchases, and I understand uh, how the sales process works, I'm able to come into this season eyes wide open. I know what the game is. I know what to expect. And I can pivot and I can move based on the information that I have from year one. But honestly, I'm all the better for it. All the struggle that's gone on, all the lack of security has just made me uh, way tougher than I was uh, beforehand.
1: No, man, I think, I think you're, you're spot on with it. And I, I love the mindset and the mind frame of, <clears throat> I got to figure it out. You know, I, I, there's no choice. And I, I think that once we remove the safety blanket, mm-hmm. you know, that cushion that the net under us, we remove it. And all of a sudden, cause it, it then you don't have a choice, right? It like it's room. either, it's either figure it out or, yep. or die. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and you, you either fly or die. Wow. And, and that's, and, and that, that I think is motivating mm-hmm. in and of itself and I think there's not enough of that. You know, we always kind of have that safety, that safety cushion, that safety net under us in a lot of ways, man. I I, I love what you're doing. Um, I love the the way that you've gone about it. Um, you know, I've I've always enjoyed following you from the being husband standpoint. You you put out a lot of great great Thank content you. on that, um, but seeing what you're doing with Suburban Farm Guy has been really really cool because. You know, it got you into a, a very niche area that's growing, and you're able to utilize some skill sets that you've developed and things that you've learned. I think it's really, you, really cool to see it kind of come to fruition and come full thank circle, you, man. It's been I'm awesome. I,
0: I mean it, and and yeah, as you said, when you remove that safety net, it is sink or swim. You have to decide, and and there's there's days, you know, if for anybody that's out there that that is on the fence about starting something. um, This is not for everybody. And I'm not even, I don't even know if it's for me right yet. Like I'm still in the process of going through the motions. The, what I'm doing right now, this year in particular, is I'm just doubling down on everything that I learned from year, what I call year zero, doubling down on everything that I learned then. And I'm going to push and push and push and build and build and build. And if I, and if at the end, it's not really worth the effort, it's okay to cut ties but the thing is, you're not going to know if it's if it's if you're not going to know if it's worth the effort until you go forward, you learn the lessons and you apply the stuff that you learn. Once you've done that and it's not put, and it's not panning out, it's OK to say that's not it wasn't worth my time. That's fine. But um, you're never going to know. And, I, and that's that's what I've got to is like, I'm never going to know if I'm. Uh, if this business is viable, if I'm the guy that can actually push the needle forward, I'm never gonna know that about myself until I test it. And and that's where I'm at right now. So I'm in the test and uh and taking all the all the licks that come with that. Oh man, I, I think you're gonna be
1: successful. Thanks, um it may not be, you know, this year, next year or even the next, but I think I, I think with the way that you approach things, the way that you push, the way that that you strive, I, I don't. I don't see how you're going to be unsuccessful in the long run. Um, so, man, I, I think uh, I just want to encourage you with that. I think I think you're going to be just fine. But, man, I, uh, we're we're kind of approaching a point. Yeah. where We're going to have to wrap this up. Um, I don't. Uh, I don't always do this, but I, I want to get you back on pretty quick for a part two because there's a bunch more stuff I wanted to go, kind of go over man. and get down the rabbit hole on. So, man, let's uh, let's let's talk real quick after after we get offline right here. And set up um, a second one, and let's do a part two uh, with you here pretty quick in the next next Brother, week or I'm, so. How, I'm how so about down.
0: that? I love the idea of this podcast. I love what you're doing, and I think more more young men need to hear stuff like this. This is this is good. So, thank you for having me on. I look forward to being a part of it.
1: Yeah, man, for sure. Um, let's like I said, let's chat real quick and let's get another it. schedule on. Man, we'll see you.
0: You've been listening to the Discomfort by Design podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and leave a review, and we'll see you next time.